0: Well, I first heard the story from my grandfather, and he said it was a true story. I don't know if it is or not, but he talked about a fire starting in a field on a farm near the farmhouse in Wisconsin when he lived there, and the volunteer fire department was called to put out the fire. And uh, the volunteers arrived in a dilapidated old fire truck with the sirens wailing, and they raced towards the fire. And they drove right into the middle of the flames and stopped in the middle of this burning field with flames all around them. And the firemen jumped off the truck and they frantically sprayed water in all directions and they had soon put out the fire and they had done it pretty quickly. And watching all of this, the farmer was really impressed and really grateful uh, that he had uh, them... uh, help him so well and so fast. And so he handed them a check for $1,000, which was a lot of money back then. And a local reporter asked the fire chief what he was going to do with that $1,000. And according to my grandfather, the chief replied, that ought to be really obvious. The first thing we're going to do is fix the brakes on the fire truck. Well, last week we started a series that we're calling Feel the Heat, and we're looking at ways that fire or heat is used in the Bible to teach us lessons about God. We talked last week how God uh, got Moses' attention by having a bush. Burst into flames and the bush kept burning, but it wasn't consumed. It didn't turn to ash. And that's how God got Moses' attention. But today's message talks about an attempt to use heat in a really negative way. But in the process, we will see God demonstrate his power in an incredible way. In fact, the message this week and next week, uh, in those messages, we'll find out God demonstrating his power in amazing ways involving fire when we trust in him, when we follow him fully. Today, we will see how God can change our most difficult days into a positive show of his power if we stay committed to him and if we stand for what is right. Basically, the main thing that we will see is God shows up when we do the right thing. God shows up when we do the right thing, even when the right thing seems to be really risky or when the right thing seems to be painful And sometimes our life is like that, isn't it? I mean, we know the right thing to do, but the right thing seems to be the harder path or the more painful path. I mean, sometimes it seems easier and less painful just to tell that lie. Sometimes hiding what we believe really does seem to be more loving and less rude. And sometimes there is just, uh, it seems like there's just less conflict and Maybe even more joy if we just cut a few corners or tell a few half-truths or hide our convictions or go along with the crowd. But God shows up when we do the right thing. God shows up when we do the right thing. He helps us and blesses us when we trust in him, when we follow his commands and guidelines for our life. It's when we truly follow him, when we truly trust him, that he protects us and saves us and demonstrates his power in our life. So let's jump right into our story for today. You'll find it in the book of Daniel if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your devices. But our story starts in 605 B.C. And the world is in chaos at this time. The Egyptians have attempted to invade Babylon, but Babylon was ruled by a young, mean, conniving and controlling and deceitful king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar soundly defeats the Egyptians, but he wasn't satisfied with his victory, and so he pursued the fleeing Egyptians, and along the way, he conquered the city of Jerusalem because they had been loyal to the Pharaoh instead of to their God. Instead of listening to God, instead of following him, his people had gone their own way. They thought they knew better that they could ignore God without any consequence. And so God allows them a taste of what life would be like without his help, without his protection. He allows this foreign uh, nation that paid no attention to God to conquer the people of God because of their disobedience. The Babylonian army basically marched right into the temple in Jerusalem and they took the articles used to worship God that were made of pure gold. And after Killing and humiliating the fighting men, they rounded up the best and the brightest of the Jewish youth and marched them far from home to Babylon. And that's where we pick up today's story. It starts with the heat of intense pressure. The heat of intense pressure. The Babylonian army had brought several of the young people to Babylon with them and understand what that would have felt like. Understand, they probably had seen their dads killed and abused. Maybe they had seen their moms and their sisters abused. And they were chained together. and They were marched to a different country. And they knew they would be slaves for the rest of their lives. They knew that they would be doing whatever their captors told them to do. And they knew that they really had no choice in the matter. I mean, the only alternative would be their death. And they also knew that that could happen at any moment during their captivity also. So they're under intense pressure. But look at how Daniel chapter 1 describes what happens next. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon." the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed renamed them and with these Babylonian names, Daniel was called Belshazzar Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now, the plan was to train these young men for three years and to give them uh, some position in the royal court of the king. And some of the men that had been chosen for this probably were very happy to be chosen. It would mean that they would get to live in the palace, that they would get to enjoy the riches. It was better work than some of their fellow uh, captives would have. Excuse me, in the three years of training would absolutely be an attempt to brainwash them. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be so indoctrinated in Babylonian culture that they would think and they would act like Babylonians. So being chosen also increased the pressure on them. Because of this training program, there was intense pressure for them to change. Let's list what the Babylonians wanted to change. First, they wanted to change what they said. They wanted to change what they said. They would be forced to change their language so that they could communicate with the people they were serving. They also wanted to change what they read. Nebuchadnezzar sought to fill their minds with Babylonian philosophy and science and astrology and religion. He would re-educate them and replace the things of God with the value system of Babylon they wanted to change how they lived the food they were given would not be kosher food and their lifestyle would become less and less jewish they also wanted to change who they worshiped who they worshiped the babylonians worshiped many gods including the king and it had been proven over and over again that the god of the hebrews was powerful and uh, he posed a threat to the king and the image that we're going to talk about in a few minutes that was created was absolutely designed to be a test of loyalty for the Hebrews. And even the new names that they gave to these young men were the names referring to Babylonian gods, which was another way to seek to get them to renounce the one true God. Now, as we seek to stay true to God, sometimes the world around us seems to pressure us to make changes maybe to use language that's more colorful or at least more correct or to change what we read it seems there's all sorts of help, of self-help books out there and it seems to me even christians even christ followers spend a lot of time reading popular christian authors and books by popular christian authors instead of reading the bible and I'm guessing we've all had pressure to adjust how we live to fit what the culture says is good and right. And the idols around us tempt us to always be worshiping new gods, gods like financial success and the God of acceptance and the God of feeling good and the God of having more and doing more. And if you're like me, you have felt the intense pressure ...from at least one of these gods. And so they put these young men under intense pressure to change. But there was one problem. They refused. They just absolutely refused to change... And they had underestimated these four teenagers living in a foreign land, 1,500 miles away from family and away from anything familiar. These boys stood out. They stood together. They stood up for God. They provided a shining example that no matter how young a person is, God can use them to change the world. So they refused to change. And that refusal brought on a different kind of heat. It brought on the heat of conflicting values. The heat of conflicting values. If you read more of the story, you will see that the king sets up an image of gold. And it doesn't say this directly, but most scholars believe that this image would have looked like the king. That it would have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And this was really big. I mean, it was 90 feet high, and it was 9 feet wide. That's uh, 9 feet wide is about the width of this platform that I'm standing on down here. And 90 feet high would be three times the height of the ceiling above my head. So this was a really big statue. It was a really big statue. And um, the king orders... That every time music plays, at certain times of the day when music plays, that everyone should stop what they're doing, fall to the ground, and worship this golden statue. That was his order. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. They refused to do it often enough that word got back to the king that they weren't bowing down to this statue. Look what happens next. I'll start in chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. These young men were trying to hold to their values, and that was really unpopular with the king. In fact, he was threatening their lives. Today, many of us feel the heat of conflicting values. Not many people around us still hold to the truth of Scripture, to God's Word. And it's unpopular in many groups of people to still believe that God meant what He said and that, he, that what He said is still applicable to our lives. And many voices ang- uh, angrily seek. To convince us to embrace other values or at least to be silent about our values. The values that are no longer viewed to be politically correct. So you probably have felt the heat of conflicting values. What do you do when that happens? What should you do when that happens? How do we respond? Well, I think we can gain some insight from our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So let me give you some hints from what they did first. Do what is right. Do what is right. The king has threatened their lives. Look at their response. We're going to to walk through this kind of slowly, but look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Interesting comment. They didn't need to defend themselves in front of this king because they knew what was right and they were determined to do the right thing. And sometimes when we're making our choice, we know what is the right thing to do, but we also know that doing the right thing or saying what is right will upset people around us. So we try to find a different path. Now, we will have to rationalize things less and defend ourselves and our motives less when we just decide to do the right thing in every situation. We can rationalize less and defend ourselves less when we just decide to do what's right in every situation. And don't forget what Jesus' brother James said. He said, when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it, it's sin. It's not just an oversight, it's sin. Second, when we face the heat of conflicting values, accept what's true. Accept what is true. They say, King, we don't need to defend ourselves to you. And the next words are really significant. Look at just the next few words. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, stop right there. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, did you catch it? They knew. They knew that they might be thrown into this blazing furnace. They knew that it was possible that doing the right thing might result in a really painful, a really uncomfortable situation for them. And that's true for us today, too. Uh, if we take a stand for Jesus, it may create pain. It might uh, get people to dislike us. I mean, we might go through some really rough times. People may hate us instead of loving us. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said they would. He said the same people that hated him We'll hate those who follow him. And of course people say harsh and horrible things about Jesus and about his followers. We serve a master who was killed because he said things that were unpopular. Again, where did we get the idea that when we became followers of Jesus, everything would get peaceful and calm? Where did we get the idea that once I crossed the line of faith and became a follower of Jesus, that my life would be easy, that all of my problems would go away, that there would be no pain in my life? Where did we get that idea? It wasn't from the Bible. The Bible never teaches that. In fact, it seems to say the opposite, that it'll get harder here and more painful here. And the truth is, life will be hard until we enter into heaven. So do what's right, accept what's true, but then remember what's possible. Remember what is possible. Go on with verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. I like this. It's kind of a direct response to what the king said. You remember what the king said at the end of his threat against them? He said, if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Their simple answer? Our God. Our God can do that. Our God is able to do that. Our God can save us. We know that. We believe that that is possible. Do you know that? Do you know that God is able to do that? That he is able to rescue you from the situation you're in right now? Your situation might seem hopeless and maybe you've made a real mess of your life and you're feeling really struck and stuck in the consequences of your own mess and I want you to know he is able to rescue you from it. He is powerful enough to do that. Or maybe the mess that you're in isn't your fault. Maybe someone else has inflicted pain and problems into your life, and it just doesn't seem that you have any way out, that you have any power to do anything about it, but remember what is possible. God is able to save you. These three guys were in that situation. They knew the king pretty much had complete power over them. They knew that they probably couldn't logic their way out of it, and They knew they couldn't fight their way out of it and they had already decided not to compromise their way out of it. But in this moment, they remembered that though this king seemed to have complete power and control over them, he didn't have any power over their God. He had zero power over their God. They knew that God was able, that it was possible. So in the midst of your panic, while doing what is right and accepting what's true. Also, remember what's possible that God is able to rescue you. There's one more action that we can take when we're feeling the heat of conflicting values. We can trust what he does. We can trust what he does. The next thing they say to the king demonstrates such trust and such devotion to God. Look at the rest of verse 17 and verse 18. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Underline or highlight those words, even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Do you know what I hope that people can say about me after I die? I hope they say these words he had even if he doesn't faith he had even if he doesn't faith what an incredible faith they had they said we know God is able to save us we think that he will rescue us but even if he doesn't we're still going to be faithful to him Even if he doesn't, we still aren't going to do the wrong thing. We still won't bow down to your silly big gold statue. We still won't give our worship or our loyalty to you. We still won't compromise our convictions. Even if he doesn't, faith means following and trusting him when someone close to you dies too young and in a tragic way. Even if he doesn't, faith keeps following him and trusting him even when people call themselves Christians, do things that are hurtful and hateful that no Christ follower should ever do. Even if he doesn't, faith means we trust God to help us. We ask him to help us. We believe fully that he is able to help us and that he will help us. But if he decides to answer in a different way, we trust what he does. We trust what he does. We trust that his way is somehow better, somehow wiser, even when we don't understand how it could be. And I understand this. When our daughter was chronically ill, we prayed. We prayed for her healing, and we believed that God could heal. We asked him to heal her. Hundreds of people joined us in praying for Kayla's healing, and when she died, it it was really hard. And I still don't understand completely. And when I see Jesus face to face, I still have some questions. I, I still want an explanation. But even though he didn't answer the way we hoped, we still trust what he does. We still serve him fully. So these are good steps that we can take when we're feeling the heat of conflicting values. You should take all of these steps we talked about, but I have to be honest with you. They won't always resolve your problem. They won't always resolve your problem. Look at what happens next. Verses 19 and 20. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. They did the right thing. They believed what was possible and still they're thrown into the blazing furnace. And the furnace had been heated so hot that even the men that carried them to the furnace door to throw them in died from the heat just being close to the furnace. It was incredibly hot. It was incredibly uh, horrible and hurtful. But being thrown into the furnace leads them to experience one more type of heat, and that's the heat of his presence. The heat of his presence. Look at verses 24 and 25. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed uh, to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. God uses this situation to show his power to the king and to the entire nation. And this situation can teach us some really encouraging lessons. I've thought of a couple. Maybe you'll think of others, but here's a few that I've thought of. The first is the fire doesn't have to consume you. Your fire doesn't have to consume you. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready to die as they were thrown in. I think they might have been expecting that, but the fire didn't consume them. And some of you think that the fire in your life right now is pretty overwhelming. That it might permanently alter who you are. That it might permanently alter how you live. And it might. It might really change things, but it doesn't have to consume you. Your fire doesn't have to consume you. It it can refine you instead. Fire is used all the time to refine precious metal by removing the impurities, by helping them to look smooth and polished. Your fire doesn't have to consume you. Here's a second lesson. God may use your fire to free you. He may use the fire to free you. The passage says the king had the strongest soldiers tie them up before throwing them into the fire. This was so they wouldn't be able to jump out and run. But the fire actually burned away whatever they tied them with. The fire actually freed them from their bondage. Is it possible that God is using the fire in your life to free you from things that have held you captive? I mean, the consequences of your addiction may be so horrible that God is using that fire to motivate you to finally use his strength to overcome it. Or the fire of conflict within your relationship may be what helps you get counseling and the help that you need so that you can be released from the problems that have seemed to trap you for years. Be encouraged. God may use your fire to free you. The last encouraging lesson is my favorite. That's this. Jesus loves to show up in the fire. Jesus loves to show up in the fire. They get thrown in the fire. And when they're standing around in the fire, Jesus is right there with them. Even the king who didn't know or respect God knew that it was God in there with them. So Jesus doesn't leave them alone in the blazing furnace. He is right there with them, and they are enjoying the heat of his presence. This is true for you too. When you feel the heat, Jesus loves to show up right then. He loves to come into our mess. It's who he is. It's who he has always been. A perfect Jesus came into an imperfect world and dwelt among us, He entered our fire to save us from our mess. We aren't quite finished yet. Look at uh, verses 26 and 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. God proved how able he really was to rescue them from the king's power. Not only were they not burned, but there was not even one hair that was singed. And they didn't even smell like they had been to a barbecue. I mean, notice who gets the credit for this. That's really important. Start with verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and they were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I will make this decree if any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. So God gets the credit. He gets all the credit. No other God can rescue like their God. The king takes at least one step closer to God. Now, he still doesn't get it completely. Now he is going to violently take care of people who say bad things about the one true God, which isn't a whole lot different than throwing people into a blazing furnace because they won't bow down to your big gold statue. And so he still doesn't get it. He's still struggling with this. But don't forget that the people around you who are far from God approach God one step at a time just one step at a time, and the king takes one step closer to God. So this passage reminds us that when we're in the midst of the fire and we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to step back from our faith, when we're tempted to stop going to church or stop going to our growth group or change what we have always believed to be true or to do something that we don't feel good about so that we can please someone else, This passage reminds us, stay faithful to God. Keep doing the right thing. Develop that even if he doesn't faith because Jesus shows up in the middle of our fire when we do the right thing. Let's pray. Would you take just a quiet moment right now and let God speak into your heart? Father, God, in our room, it's really quiet right now. But we believe that many prayers are meeting you, speaking to you. And Father, we're so thankful that you promise that you will hear our prayers, that you will answer. And so, Father, right now, we believe that you are able that you are able to rescue us, that you are able to give us the strength to stand strong. Father, we are so thankful for your promise of your presence that when we've trusted in you, that your Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, that we're two or more are gathered, that you are here with us. And so, Father, thank you for the heat of your presence with us. Father, would you help us as we take steps towards you? Give us courage to do that. Father, we trust you. And Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.